on the shoulders of dwarves, a weekly podcast about role-playing games. Hello and welcome to On the Shoulders of Dwarf, a weekly podcast about role-playing games and the gamers who game them. My name is Eran Aviram. My name is Uri Lifshitz. And today we will be discussing how to customize the campaign to and for the players. And while that might seem like we're talking about GMs, because only GMs customize campaigns, we actually also talk to the players. And I think a lot of the things we will say are more relevant to the players than they are for the GM. Hmm. Yep, and throughout this episode, we're going to talk about adventures in general, but we will focus on modules or yes. published adventure mostly, but pay attention that pretty much every tip that we give here can be applied to your homebrew adventure. We just assume that since you're making your own adventure, it's already pretty heavily yeah. customized yeah, exactly. toward your own players. However, we could be mistaken. Maybe you're just reusing a campaign that you created years ago for a different group. So you might want to re-customize that for your current players. I run almost exclusively pre-generated content. Things that other people created and that I've read reviews about and that I know that it's good and that I will enjoy running, that my party will enjoy playing through. And I almost never create new stuff these days. Actually, the only thing that I do create these days is for Crystal Heart, which is... On its way to becoming a published model. <laughs> yes, and not something that I currently play. I playtest it, but I don't play it. I will give a few examples from the game that I do play because I am running, again, a pre-published adventure, specifically 50 Fathoms, which is very bare-boned, intentionally so, and I had to do some work to customize it for my players. I, on the other hand, rarely run any pre-published adventures. I love creating my own adventures, my very own campaign, and I pretty much prefer to do everything customized and hand-picked for my players. I have run several uh, published adventures, uh, mainly because people come and say, oh my God, you have to try this adventure. It's amazing. So most of the adventures I've run, which were published, were amazing. But as a general rule, I prefer to have everything pre-done, pre-designed, pre-made by myself for a specific group. But you are playing... In Adventure Paths by Peso, um, Pathfinder, um, six adventures, one after the other, with a GM that is very, I don't know how to say strict, but he's very rules-oriented yes. and very run the adventure as is, which is amazing. <laughs> so you do have to approach these things from the player's side. Yep. I want to discuss an important point before we continue on, and it is about the difference between customizing to the players and for the players. I mean, obviously we're customizing for the players, but the two is the most important part here because our goal is to create a campaign in which the players will feel at home. The players, not the characters, where the players will enjoy what is happening to them, the, this story that they're part of. And because we are talking about the players, they have such a huge role in it and can really, really help the GM in this customization from the get-go. So let's start with the players. Players, 
explain what you enjoy. Know what you enjoy. Learn, learn yourself. What, what do you like when, when you come to the table? What is your motivation for playing? Why are you here? Do you just like um, rolling some dice and defeating some monsters? That's awesome. Do you just like hanging out with us? Just having some fun and occasionally doing uh, funny role-playing voices? That's, that's fine. Excellent. But it is important for you to know what kind of stories you enjoy, what kind of genres you enjoy. It's fine if you are not sure. Uh, Uri, I want to run a horror game, but I've never played a horror game. Why do I do your voice? It's, your, it's you. Uri, I want to run a horror is, game. Is that my voice? Oh, my God. Why, so. why didn't anyone say anything? <laughs> oh, God. How did you let me record a podcast? <laughs> anyway, God. Anyway, if you are unsure about something, maybe suggest running a one-shot in which you will try out the system, you will try out the genre, you will try and see if you enjoy this, and only then you will commit to a long-form campaign. Okay, so in the spirit of On the Shoulders of Dwarves, we're going to give you a very easy (laughs) five-step program how to customize the campaign to your players. I am, of course, lying. This is actually a six-step program, oh. but we started counting from zero. So, <laughs> And that's because step zero is really important, but it really comes before you customize the campaign. It's choosing the campaign. What are you going to run? In our group, for example, when we finished the last campaign, we took a bit of a hiatus, and then we came back. I already, as a GM, had three or four adventures, pre-made adventures, again, I only run pre-made adventures, that are ready to, I think, be consumed by my players. I wasn't sure about all of them. So we sat down and we did a whole, I mean, it's not a session, it's like a pre-session, I don't know, a whole thing where we sat down and I explained all of them, everything that I find exciting and interesting about each of them, what sort of system they are in, and if we don't know the system, then I explained a bit about the system. Any sort of problem that I think might be with them, like, for example, one of the adventures is still being published. So there was a chance that we will outrun the publishing and we find ourselves without anything to play. And I just laid all bear out and we discussed this and thought about what we would like to play. We thought about some characters we might want to try, etc. This really, really helped with everything that came afterward, which is why this is step zero. Yes, like Iran said, it's a lot of time the important thing is picking the right adventure. I I try to think of my adventures as movies that I want to act in. And sometimes you would pick a movie from a genre that you or some of the players don't enjoy, and probably you won't enjoy the adventure as well. Mm. Now, because I don't run published adventure but write my own, a lot of times I would have to decide on a genre myself. So my conversation with the players in our pre-campaign talk would be more along the line of, okay, uh, I'm thinking of an action-packed thriller with some supernatural elements in it. What do you say? And people might say something like, yeah, awesome. Car chases would be awesome there. I'm going to, I want a character who's very into that. Hmm. Or someone would say, yeah, and uh, maybe, you know, delve into the the underbelly of society because I want someone who live in the gutters and blah, blah, blah. I'm a player, blah, blah, (laughs) which are awesome. And that helped me a lot to define the genre in which I will be creating the adventure. 
But it was even more than that because you guys decided on playing in a specific already established canon that you all know, Dresden Files, in, in yep. the game that you're currently playing, which is, again, making it super easy for you and for them because you have a basis upon which you can compare and contrast. You know now, as a player, what sort of world you live in and what is possible and impossible. Yeah, it's it's in a way playing in a pre-established world is a great uh, set expectation for yes, everyone. Yes, you know exactly the feel of the world, the feel of the adventure, the the style in which things should unfurl. Yes, it works. Even better, you used fate, which is a system that begins with creating a game together which is a lot of the steps that you've just described a lot of the well i want this sort of genre okay so we'll have these sorts of skills in our game that that is true but also if you don't want to do all that you're thinking oh my god that is so much work and i hate talking with my players <laughs> i hate them i i literally i'm jamming just so i could kill their characters and that's fine no if everyone enjoy no. that okay and maybe all you want to do is buy an adventure and run it. And that's all you want to do. You don't want to spend too much time thinking about it. And that's also fine. But remember that buying an adventure, purchasing a module, is also a process. And every model has its own genre, its own setting, its own feel. And simply picking the right one could make your life so much easier. For something that both your player will enjoy and something that you yourself will enjoy running. Let us continue now to step one. Ground the adventure in the setting. It is sort of a continuation of what we've just said. It is especially important if you are running an adventure that is generic. I don't usually do that. I try, I aim to run full campaigns, but occasionally... I will find myself, and I think a lot of you guys listening to us as well, finding this cool module that is like for five to six players, level three to five or whatever. And it looks like a, a fun dungeon or a cool, I don't know, chase scene or whatever. And your friends uh, said, wow, this is an amazing adventure. And it's generic. It's meant to be put in any world. It's super duper important to ground it in your world, in the world that you are currently playing in, where your campaign is. That's very much true, but also there's so many places in which you can find adventures. You can find them online, you can find them, there's a one-page dungeon contest, which Iran won like twice. Once, and once, and it was seven years ago, and there were 25 winners, so it doesn't, it doesn't count. You know what, I'm just going to say this. I've read the adventure that Iran sent there, and I'm like dying to run this for it's seven years adventure. now, and I it haven't is yet. Great, yes. But the point is, just because you have a fun, amazing adventure doesn't mean it necessarily fits into your world, especially if you're in an ongoing game and you just finished one adventure and you want the same character to do a side quest to that specific adventure or thing like that. Just make sure that that adventure fits into the setting that you're currently in. I will even say it, uh, I, will, I will even take it one step further. I think most generic adventures are so generic, they have to be. It's just this fantasy world with elves and orcs, 
and most people don't play in a very, very generic world. Even if you play like in Forgotten Realms, it's Forgotten Realms and it has its own politics and stuff, etc. And organizations even that always have something to do with your game. And these adventures are always too generic. They have to be. They can't be written otherwise. Some of our listeners at the moment are asking themselves, okay, grounding your adventure in the setting, what, what the hell does that even mean? And I would say, simply put, it means that if you take that adventure and put it next to all the other stuff happening inside your setting, it won't stand out. Mm. You would recognize the thing, the people, the items, the locations. Yep, yeah. location, names. If, mm. if you have a very high fantasy medieval style game setting and suddenly all the names of that specific adventure are borrowed from old French, it might stand out and feel unconnected unless there's a very specific reason why it stands out. And that specific reason would have to include everything around it. Oh, this is the hidden valley where no one goes because they're assholes. (laughs) That's why they have different names and location and whatever. Um, if there is nobility in that world, how does the nobility inside that specific adventure correlate or communicate with the nobility outside it, etc.? Simply make it feel like a part of the setting. Let's continue then to step two. Step two. Connect your player characters to the adventure. Most adventures already come with plot hooks, uh, these generic sort of things that you can drop on your player characters and, well, you received a letter that requested you go and this and this and this. They don't, generally speaking, do a very good job because they can't. The, the p- people that wrote the adventure don't know your characters. They don't know your players. They don't know what will motivate them, which, of course, requires some work. But I will take it even a step further to the campaign level again, because this is what I would like to discuss in this episode. When you create your character, you, player dude, it is really important to connect your player character, the person that you create, to this world, and even more so, to the specific campaign. I'll take for an example, Ref of the Righteous, an adventure path by Paizo that I played through the, the half uh, the first half of it, a few uh, months back, even a year or so. And it's all about paladins and clerics and, you know, these good guys fighting demons. This is not the place to create a funny little wizard that is confused and doesn't know what he's going to do with his life, etc. No, 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 no. This is a fight. This is like you lead an army against demons. Your characters need to have a reason to participate in this campaign. It's not the GM's responsibility to make sure that that your character is interested to be around and wants to play the adventure. The best tool that I know regarding all of this is the player companion. In all of my campaigns now, it's a must. It has been for the past 10 years or so. I never start a campaign without giving my players a player companion, which is, it can be like four pages long. It can be two pages long. It's usually about 32 pages long because I don't write them. Other people write them and I just present them. Every Adventure Path by Paizo come with 
um, a player companion like this, which is basically an explanation of the setting, of the current situation. Like, for example, uh, if we are going to play rebels in a city, we should know some things about the city. We should know why we are going to rebel. We should hate some NPCs that are going to be important. And even better, the player guide gives some some mechanical rules, some um, actual things that will help you guide your character in a specific way that is more relevant to this campaign. Like, for example, if we are playing in a city, the guide will say, don't play a ranger, dude. It's not going to be useful here. Play something else. If you do play a ranger, maybe think about taking this archetype or doing that thing, or maybe consider or ask yourself what pushed me into this unusual position. Be aware that there are circumstances surrounding the starting of this campaign. It's not what uh, 30 years ago was so common and understandable as the basic for all role-playing games. You are a group of whatever player characters you created, and you go around and do adventures. That doesn't happen anymore. It, it not, even in D&D, that doesn't happen anymore. Every campaign of D&D now comes with its own campaign guide and its own little tiny little player companion guide with backgrounds that are only relevant to that campaign, for example. It does require, however, your players to sit down and read some stuff. And I know that's hard. but Very hard. It's, it's the minimum amount of commitment that I ask my players to do. I don't ask them to do almost anything else. Weekly questions, show up in time, roll well. But but it's it's really important that at the start of the campaign, they sit down and write interesting characters that are relevant to the campaign after reading through this. They don't have to read all of it. Just pick whatever is interesting and, and concentrate on that part. But Uri, what you said before, what you started with, how it's important that everyone is excited about the campaign, that's really helpful here. Because if I really want to play in this 50 Fathoms game where we are pirates and yards, etc., etc., I, I will sit down and I will read this. I might not read every in- entry in these four pages long um, Atlas of the World, but maybe that name catches my eye and I read about that and, oh, wait, okay, maybe I come, f- I come from there. Or maybe I want to get there someday or whatever. It's also fine to deviate from that as long as it's done knowingly yes. and with your DM approval and guidance. Example given, I'm currently playing Curse of the Crimson Throne. This is a Paizo Pathfinder adventure path taking place in the great city of Corvosa. And like you've mentioned before, this whole campaign will probably take place inside the city. A ranger or a druid will be amazingly useless there. Uh, however, I really wanted to play a character from Cheliak's uh, faraway southern kingdom. Because I, as I was reading about the world, it caught my eye and I thought, this is cool. So I went to my GM and I said, listen, I want to play a character from Chelex. He said, yeah, but you're going to have to be really, really intensely in love with the city of Corvosa. Mm. I said, fine. I was a nobleman. I was sent over to Caravosa to be educated like they do with many noble sons. And I fell in love with the city. And I've been living here ever since for uh, five years now. Nice. And it was very nice. It's also allowed me the chance to play a kind of a fish out of water comedy type. Because mm. I, I don't really understand a lot of the local customs. But I really want to because I consider myself a true-blooded Caravosian. 
um, but I'm actually more like a, an extended tourist, which yeah, gave room for a lot of funny roleplay moments. I would also claim that connecting your player character to the adventure would be even in the simplest things of when you're doing the plot hooks, instead of saying, you know, the local baron asked the player to kiss a cursed frog that he found in his pond. Mm-hmm. Blah, blah, blah. The, it, one of the most standard adventure, Very standard books, adventure. Yes. Uh, that you've ever uh, seen. Now, instead of that, just pick a character, an NPC that the characters already know. It should be the Baron Francis, whom you might remember from your last adventure, the ones where you yes. kicked away the goblins, have asked for your help with some amphibians issue that he has, which requires some minor form of discretion. Now, this is easier than most GM realize. If, for example, I take a pre-published adventure, again, just a module that is generic and has nothing to do with what is going on here. It's about, like, say, a manor that is haunted by demons or whatever. And I want to run it for my players. And... The players already know where this nobleman, let's say it's a nobleman, again, that will be the prime motivator, uh, but they already know where the nobleman manor is, and it's not the same manor that appears in the published adventure. But I can simply say, well, this is the summer abode. This is where they go when it's summer. Or this is his brother's long-lost manor, and the brother has been dead for years, and only now, after the um, nobleman came to know and trust the PCs, he comes and asks them to get rid of the demons in the demon-infested manner or whatever. I mean, as long as you as the GM are willing to think outside the box and perhaps even just ask your players for advice on this, uh, guys, I have uh, I have a manner and I really want to, what can we do? Oh, I have an idea. It's Uri again. I'm doing the Uri voice. Uh, maybe it's the nobleman that we know, and it's his manor. No, it can be his manor, but maybe, oh, you know what? His brother's manor. Okay, yes, we love it. I mean, the players are also, here. It usually can be his manor. It's fine. Nobles have no, shitload of manners. Yes, so many manners. <laughs> The thing is, the players are here because they want to enjoy the adventure. They know that their characters need to have motivations to go on adventures. There's really no reason to keep this secretive or or in the air or whatever. Again, if you as a player followed the, the steps so far, you will give your GM some loose hooks. Um, well, I have this father and mother, and they are important people in a city. I'm not sure which city, and I'm not sure wha- <laughs> wha- what's, in what way they're important. So use this whenever. That, that's amazing. As a gem, I want to hear this. Actually, Curse of the Crimson Throne start amazing by simply telling the players, okay, there's this guy, he's a terrible criminal, and in some way, he horribly affected all of your lives. Mm. Tell me how. Nice. Good. And you 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 have a selection of like uh he killed a very good friend of yours, he kidnapped a family member. You know, you you have some suggestions there which are terrible. But <laughs> it's amazing cuz it it's put the responsibility in the hands of the player and simply saying, "Listen, we need a strong motivation. What would be a good strong motivation for you?" Yes. And since you know you best, Tell us. This is very similar to a thing that we've discussed many times before, uh, asking a leading question. Um, you hate this guy. Why do you hate him? 
you guys have a long history together. How did it start? Yes, exactly. Why do you trust him? You establish a fact and then let's, let's discuss, create something together. But also, let's continue to step three. Find places the players require and fill them in. This is very different from what we've just talked about. We offer suggestions of where you can um, place the player characters, but your players, as we've started with, have their own motivations for coming for the table. And the adventure might not be enough for all of them. It might not have everything that they want. And that's fine. You, you don't need to make sure that everyone is enjoying themselves all the time with everything. And that's impossible as well. But it's quite possible that you can fill in some places by creating some new things. It, it doesn't even have to be a very big thing. You don't need to create a whole new dungeon or whatever. But maybe if this dungeon is filled by gnolls instead of goblins, that might be enough for the player that is tired of goblins. The player, not the player character. Maybe it's a player that have been playing with goblins for years and years and years, and he wants something interesting and new and unusual about this fantasy world that you are playing in. So replace all the goblins with gnolls. Replace them with space goblins. I don't know. I mean, do something that makes sure that the player is satisfied. And it can be a lot of things. It can be types of scenes. If, for example, you have players that really, really like exploration and discovering stuff deep within the dungeon, like hidden rooms and stuff, you can just add some hidden rooms. I can say as a GM, I try to motivate myself a lot of the time by running scene types and creature types, which I've not run before. Mm. I discovered it helped me as a GM, again, to be more focused in what I'm doing. I think an important thing to say about this step is that you probably should do some of this as prep work before the game, which is a thing that I abhor, and yet I, I actually do so. Uh, I sat down, and I will give some examples in the end of, of the episode for um, how I did it. Um, I sat down and I thought about my players and what they like and what I will add into the the game. But then during the session, it's important to adapt because you might discover that the thing that you've added is... Um, unused or uninteresting or too complicated maybe you were going too far and you really you really don't need to go very far with this that's it step four step four giving your players solid leads after you created the fun it's important to point at the fun and tell the players guys the fun is over there <laughs> Go for it. It's something to strive for, something to patiently wait for while other things happen. If I'm the kind of guy that super duper enjoys getting ultra loot and discovering secret rooms, it's important that someone, an NPC or whatever, will say something about the hidden treasure deep inside the dungeon. So I Oh my god, have you heard of all that gold they were hauling into the manor last week? <laughs> <laughs> my <laughs> uncle almost broke his back just unloading packs and packs and packs of that. Anyway, can you pass the peanuts, please? It's not the same thing as player character motivation. It's not the same thing as, ah, well, my character heard about it, so now I want to go and do that. It's about making sure that the players know that you filled up the, the fun, filled up the spaces that we discussed before, and that there is something waiting for them when they get there. 
It doesn't have to be this session, next session. It can be way in the future. But they have a location on the map that they know to go to, and this, the fun will be had over there, the thing that they are looking for. I actually go about this whole process in a more roundabout way. I would consider what my players really need in order to gain enjoyment and pleasure from the game. Mm-hmm. I would pick locations on the map. I'm going to say, okay, this abandoned warehouse is where we're going to have a shitload of traps. Okay, this thieves guild is where we're going to have the fancy dinner with the political discussion, blah, 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 blah. And once I have all those mapped up, it's very easy for me to say, okay, I now have everything every one of my players need to enjoy the game. I just have to like stretch plot lines from one location to the other. However, because all of these locations are predetermined, it's very easy for me to drop non-solid leads and solid leads. Okay. It's very easy to say something like, oh, uh, have you heard about all the trouble they had in the old warehouse district? Yeah, blah, 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 blah. Um, anyway, what were you asking? Oh, you were asking about the Thieves Guild. They can be found up north. So easily, they have a very solid uh, lead. What should you do now? Because the plot, it would advance the plot. But minor leads that would divert you into somewhere where you will have fun. I think that also because you create stuff and your players know it, then they know that their turn will come. If today we are doing this, uh, I don't know, ball at the court of the fairy court or whatever, and half of the party really likes this, but the Which other court, I, the, you the can summer just court. say the court, good point, summer court, the okay. summer court, yes, and the half of the party really likes it, and and the other half is enjoying themselves as well, but they really like, I don't know, fighting demons or whatever then next session that you will be fighting demons, then you have earned the trust of your players. Guys, don't worry. Even if today the thing that you're looking for didn't happen, wait for it. It will happen next time. Your turn will come. And that's super duper important and very useful in the kind of game that you run where you create your own adventure. I think that the reason I talked about pointing at the map is because we are playing a sandbox game. The player can go anywhere on the map. Now that they know where to go in order to advance their own, as player, motivations, that's, that's awesome to them, and that's how it works in my game. Time for step five, and the final step. Rewards and payoff. If you're playing a published adventure... Usually, the rewards and the payoff and the loot are written down, and it's really easy to just read off the page. However, you could make small changes and adjustments that you won't believe how much they will shake your players and add so much more fun to your sessions. I'm going to give the simplest example ever. One of the magic items in the treasure that you're you're now looting is a magical lance of some sort. And one of your players is not using a lance, but a hellbard. You could simply change that lance into a hellbard in order for that player to be amazingly happy. It's as simple as that. The difference between, oh, this is a great piece of equipment. We can sell that and use the gold to get something else. Yes. 
oh my god, this is awesome. I'm going to use this because that's exactly what my character would want. And this is going to be a constant reminder for this part of the adventure. Yes. Of course, it shouldn't probably be too much in your face. Like, for example, if I am using a chakram and I am from a distant land and for some reason I find a chakram, a plus two chakram <laughs> in this uh, loot box, then this this is weird and feels off-putting, at least to me. Indeed. Um, however, I... Maybe I find a gem that I can socket into my chakram. Maybe I find a liquid metal that I can pour over my chakram. Maybe I find a necklace that makes me an amazing thrower of chakrams because that's what I'm throwing. But it doesn't have to be. It can be anything else. But I'm the only one in the party that throws stuff. So, of course, I will take it. And I'll become an amazing chakram thrower thanks to it. And it's a lot more sensible and grounded in the world. And a lot more rewarding yes. for the player. And it doesn't have to be something that actually matters. Uh, I'm going to give you a simple example. Again, from my current campaign, we play Curse of the Crimson Throne, and I play a Chelyaxian young nobleman. And we found in one of the vaults that we looted a whole bunch of gold bars. Because people like to have gold and they store it in bars. And these specific bars have the Chelyax seal on them. You know, it doesn't matter anything plot-wise. It's simply something that was minted near my hometown. And that was amazing for my character. That was, oh, look, these are, these are from Chelyax. You can tell by the quality. And, and there goes a like 10 minutes rent of the decaying quality <laughs> of work and marksmanship throughout the land uh, during my father's days, blah, blah, blah. Uri, you said this is not important. You started this whole thing by saying, well, it can be even something. It's super important. What you just said is really important. It's just yes, not important plot-wise. It's not important plot-wise, yes. and it's not important in the sense that if the module clearly states they find treasure gold bars worth 1,000 gold pieces, it doesn't matter if those gold bars have an insignia on them. It doesn't matter if it's not gold bars, but gold coins or ingots or golden tapestry. No, that's stupid. Why would you create a tapestry? <laughs> Regardless, the fact is you can customize the reward and the treasures in order for them to be more interesting for your players and for your player characters. I think the distinction you just did is very important because while the insignia on the bars was important to your player character, it was even more important to you as a player. I don't know about other players in your party, but I know you, Uri. And when your GM gives you something like that, it gives you an opportunity to weave a story. And this is something that you, Uri, enjoys doing at the table. You enjoy portraying your character, complaining about the whatever, whatever, etc., etc. And this gave you an opportunity to do so. And this is mm -hmm. a very important sort of payoff. And I, like, again, for example, if I take a different player that I know of, who is my wife, and she really enjoys, well, she doesn't need gold. She, she has no use for gold, but she enjoys being able to cast spells even better than before. And to see that her other party members enjoy themselves and are um, being useful and find themselves in a good position in the world, etc., etc. So 
as a reward for her, I can give something to someone else and she will enjoy it as a player. Again, it has nothing to do with her character. The player would love to finish a quest and have someone else get something. <laughs> it's, it, it will make her day. And it's an amazing distinction that you, you know, you notice that because Dusty is your wife and, and you know her intimately and you can tell when she's happy. But truthfully, it's not that difficult to look at the table and see when your players are smiling. And if you would do so, throughout time, you could map out what makes every player tick. Yes. I love... Watching other players do very complicated technical repositioning and actions in battle, for example. Mm. This is like a weird thing that I enjoy. Like, I don't know anyone else who does. Um, if, if two other players going to work together to do something awesome, which is not in the rules, I'm, I'm going to enjoy myself. That, that's it. That, that was a scene you will remember now. That's something that you, Uri, really likes. Yep. Nice. So it's very easy sometimes to notice these things and just make your players happy without changing anything plot-wise or even adventure-wise. Simply in a specific scene, add some little something that they would enjoy or their character. Especially, again, step five, rewards and payoffs. Now, that was our final step, but before we finish this with a summary, I want to give an example from the campaign that I'm currently running. Again, it's 50 Fathoms. It's one of the earliest campaigns for Savage Walls, which is a system that is all about fast, furious fun. And 50 Fathoms is about going around on a ship in this wall that is slowly drowning and trying to make it stop drowning. <laughs> a, a, little, a little less drowning, if you can. And there are various fantasy races, but they are not the fantasy races that you know. And there are various spells and stuff and magic, but it's a pretty cool type of simple magic. It's, it's fast and furious. There's nothing too complicated. And I'm running for my wife, Dasi, and Aviv from up to four players, and Ev, her husband. And when we started playing, again, I gave them, as I said before, a player's guide, a player's companion. Uh, they actually have one, I'll give a link in the show notes, for a player's companion, which is basically the first half of the rulebook of 50 Fathoms. It's everything the players can know. And they read through it, and they created some characters, and they gave me some interesting hooks. And I already, even when we created characters, I told them where we are going to start things off, and I informed them that things are going to get off the rails very soon. So they start all on the same ship, they are all part of the same crew, and the first thing that happens, this is not a spoiler, the ship crashes on the shores of some land. So oh, I hate when that happens. <laughs> yeah, and the captain basically dies. And for that to have some impact and on, on the rest of the story, all of them decided to do something relating to this and gave me hooks that I can use later on. Now, I especially want to talk about what I did on step three, finding the places for the players, the things that they require and fill them in, because it took a bit of effort, but as I said, not a lot of effort, and it might be interesting for you guys. So Ev is playing a Doreen. The Doreen, basically, all of them died, almost all of them died, when they tried to swim away to the west and find new lands as the, as the water rose more and more. And when they arrived at these new lands, they were almost completely annihilated by the um, Kahana, which are these 
fish-like people that were already had there. So there are very few Doreen around, and all of them are very bitter about this, because it was, it was Holocaust-like sort of thing for them. So Ev is playing a very morbid sort of Doreen, like apparently all of them are. And his motivation for sailing is to find relics of his lost people, and, you know, try to keep the Doreen in the world by the artifacts, at least, if not by the, the race themselves, because there are so few of them around. Also, he's a bit of an assassin. He likes to sneak around and kill things from behind by stabbing, 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 stabbing. So he needed something to play against. He needed something to contrast with his desire to stab things. And I decided the best thing would be another Durin. A Durin that gives him a different perspective on what's going around here. And because I try to, if I can... Um, push as many things as I can together because I don't want to spread around. I don't know if you guys remember for previous episodes, but I don't keep notes. So I should, I should keep everything in the same location. The party also needed a ship. As I've just mentioned, they lost one at the start of the game. And it's a game about having a ship. So they needed to have a ship. I decided to fa- make them encounter a Doreen captain of a pirate ship. In order to make it interesting, of course, then they had to actually capture it because the captain was sort of shipless. Someone else took the ship from her and she sort uh, of You hired. sort of combine the different needs into one scene, uh, into, uh, one yeah. plot line. In, and a single person, this Captain Doreen, who is very different from the way that Ev is playing his Doreen. She is bitter, but she does not at all care about what happened. And if she has anything, any sort of... of deeper relation to her Doreen heritage, she doesn't show it at all. Uh, she She's bloodthirsty and bloodlust just like he. All of the Doreen are kind of like crazy, but but in a different way. And that was something for him to play against. Someone for him to play against. And I, th- I think it works so far. Also, it got them a ship. And most importantly, it gave them a scene that we sort of really wanted all of us from, from the beginning of the game we wanted to, you know, attack a ship and steal it and, and sail away with a captain. Yar! It's what Yar. Like, pirates do and stuff. So it gave me an opportunity that all of which came up from this, wait, how about we give a Doreen for Ev to play against? All of, all of that came up from that idea. Aviv gave me her parents. Uh, she's playing a Masquani, which is the local sort of human thing. And she just said, my parents are these accountants from an important city. And I asked her, do you know which accountants? one? Accountants? Accountants, yes, yes. They, 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 wow. they literally count money and stuff. Uh, I asked her which important city. And she said, I, I'm not sure. I don't really remember. And we said, okay, we'll, we'll determine later on. And that really worked well now because when the party arrived at Baltimus, which is this huge harbor, we already decided before that this is where her parents live. And when they came there, the, it was a very satisfying and useful thing. They approached the, her parents, and they can use the parents to sort of roll streetwise and persuasion about things that are happening around the city. Ob- obviously, it was useful and interesting, but it was also a good thing to arrive at a place and already feel welcomed, at least for Aviv and by, I think, association um, Dasi and Ev as well. Baltimus is not just a big city where you can buy stuff. It's home. It might not Aww. be th- their home, but it's a home 
and they were accepted. And we, we played, I think, for half a session, this dinner during which they discussed things and talked and we all in character. And, and it was, first of all, of course, a lot of fun, but also satisfying dramatically for everyone involved. And for Aviv, who really wanted to have a big family, that's, that's, uh, that's th- something about her, her um, character. This is what she's, she wants to play now, someone with a family. Well, this is a family that doesn't go anywhere and doesn't do anything. So I will also do something with her brother, which is get, got into trouble or something. And they'll be learning about it very soon. Finally, Dasi really super duper likes exploring secrets. This is what she's here for. She wants to discover th- things. This is what she's enjoying. So I gave her lots of stuff to discover, but not too much. Because if you just give 27 mysterious boxes, nothing comes out of it. Instead, she gave me um, the captain. I think it was called Ezekiel or something. The one that died. Well, apparently she was put on the ship in order to guard him. Bam, bam, bam. Even she doesn't know why. It was her admiral that just said, you need to guard him. It's a favor that he owes me and I owe him. Uh, we have a secret connection. And she doesn't know. She gave it to me. The player doesn't know. The character doesn't know. I don't know. No one knows. But it's there and it will be used in the future. Whenever I decide that it's important and useful. And second thing, when they stormed the ship from before, they also found a mysterious scroll with ancient writing and they keep it and they don't know what it means and don't know anything about it. And it wasn't there in the original adventure. And most of what I said so far wasn't there in the original adventure. There wasn't a ship, there wasn't a captain, a Dorin captain, and there wasn't this scroll. I added all of this to help my players find the fun and pointed them directly at it. I think in a way I could sort of summarize a lot of the tips we gave today to let your players feel at home in your adventures yes and let them enjoy the character through using the skills and abilities that the character have and the likes and dislikes the players have i'll also give a very tiny example when i started playing my current um, character krieger van messer the Cheliaxian warlord you know, I, I didn't know what to make of him. I created the skills and abilities. And because for some reason, and don't judge me, I was watching Project One Way, I thought, okay, my character know how to create clothes. Why oh, not? Okay. That's and nice. I simply, I took three skill points and I put them into craft clothing. And that was the end of it, more or less. However, my GM, because he noticed that and as I was mentioning it, simply put into the campaign possibilities for me to use that skill. For example, we were fighting this, uh, well, I'm not going to add spoilers here. We were fighting someone who was dressed in a very specific uniform. Mm. And he said, okay, uh, you can all roll knowledge local to determine what that specific uniform means, or you can use craft closing because that's a very specific uh, form of uniform and embroidery and such. And I did. I, I rolled the craft clothing and I got more information, which was plot relevant. And that made me amazingly happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
The only thing I want to say about this advice is that it also goes the other way around. I mean, you said let the players enjoy their character skills and abilities, but also players choose enjoyable skills and abilities. And by enjoyable, I mean relevant to the campaign and useful as well. And, and make sure that the GM is aware of the usability. Like in this example, even if your GM wasn't, maybe, maybe he just wasn't aware of you having this skin. Maybe he forgot about it. Probably he was aware, but maybe he forgot about it. You, as the player, should inform him that you are able to do so and ask to do so. Don't, don't be, you know, don't, be, don't nudge. Don't go like, can, can I, ah, but you're robbing me of the opportunity to do the thing. Don't, don't be petty about it. But, hey, I have this skill. I yeah, really like I doing think- it. I think in a way it's like step four, give the player solid leads. Yeah. Give the GM solid leads of what you want to do Very as true. a player. Very true. That's it. Guys, if you enjoyed what you talk about and maybe you have more steps or different steps or variant steps, you are more than welcome to comment on dwarfcast.net or reach to us at wherever we are, which is basically Twitter and Facebook, at dwarfpodcast.net. Both there and there. And you can send us an email, show at dwarfcast.net. We will not only reply to your email, we might even turn it into an episode. If you want to, please say so in the mail. And now it's time for a little commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Loot Chest, which is a lot bigger than a loot box. In the Loot Chest, you will find a king's ransom and balloons and pieces of hate and gold. Hmm. Why should I give you my Loot Chest? I will keep it. I will bury it. And it shall remain mine forever. And now it's the part of the show in which we take the load off, where we talk a bit about what we're doing and what we will be doing relating to role-playing games in this and past and week and whack and wook. What are you doing, Uri? Well, what I have been doing this week is I had a night off and I've been watching Full Metal Alchemist, the live action movie, (sighs) which is a, a decent film. Is it? It is. Okay. It's a decent film. It's not really, really good. It's not bad. It's a decent film. Wait, wait, we should, we should both start by explaining that we really like Full Metal Alchemist, both you and I. I really love both series and i think they are the first one is awesome and the second one is amazing and it's everyone should watch the series full metal Alchemist and full metal Alchemist brotherhood do continue yes uh, yes and so i watched the live action version which is a decent movie however given the track record of all pretty much all anime adaptation to live action movie makes it really really high on the list because oh, wow. most okay. of them are shite. Okay. <laughs> um, but we are a role-playing podcast, so let me get to the role-play-related parts. There are so many things which I love about Full Metal Alchemist because they're the embodiment of 
getting a lot of stuff right. Mm. And it's something that you can and should aspire to do in your own campaign settings. For a starter, it's a setting that is special. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. A thousand times yes, Uri. You have magic uh, called alchemy, of course, and it has rules and etc. of course. But you have magic, which is really in a very well-thought-out way ingrained in the world. You understand yes, and exactly in society as well. Yes. yes. You understand why the magic is there. You understand why everyone treated the way they do. But you also don't say, wow, well, then why don't everyone just do this or do that? Why do they even have an economy? Blah, blah, yes, blah. Yes, yes. Another something, they're not technologically impaired. They, they stopped like, uh, they have trains, they have cars, uh, no planes yet, but it's getting there. <laughs> yes. Uh, they have phone booths, they have telegraph. They're not it's, stuck in uh, medieval status. Which is awesome to see, you know, a, a magical battle in the in in a street, and then cars fly by, and they're old cars, but it it kind of make you go ah for a moment because it's not one or the other. It's not some magic in a modern setting yes. or some technology in a medieval something. Now another something which I loved about the the series and that the movie did well is there are characters which you are supposed to like. And you like them. They're very likable. They use very simple emotional manipulation in order for you to like some characters. Of course, every character that you like, something terrible happens to them afterwards. That's the point of having characters which you like. And I think if you're watching the movie or the series, you can glimpse very easily how to do that to your players. Mm. It could be as simple as someone volunteering a shelter for the players, offering to make them dinner, introducing them to his uh, beautiful wife, etc., etc. So many things in that movie I've just watched and said, okay, they, they did that well. It doesn't mean that it's a good movie. Again, it's a yes, decent yes. movie. But you can simply watch that movie with pen and paper, and every time you hit a trope, write down that, and you get a list of very good, well-executed tropes, which nearly every single one of them can be transported to a role-playing game because they're not overly medium-specific. I mean, there are some things which are medium-specific. You, you can create tension with a zoom in to someone's eyes or something. And that's very medium-specific for a movie. Or, or a series or anything televised. But most of the things they use are really, really simply good use of character description and activities. And that's something that very easily can be transformed into your role-playing game. So I suggest pick a movie, watch it, and just write down you know, every character, why you like it, why you don't like it, what action that they did actually advanced the plot. And at the end of watching that movie, you would have a very good list of do's and don'ts that you can take to your role-playing game. Also, I had a kick-ass session and my character kicked ass. Hence, making the session kick-ass. Awesome. 
Uh, I have very little to say. I played some mouse guards literally yesterday. And uh, Lloyd, I'm talking to you, Lloyd, specific listener called Lloyd. I am still unsure about this game that is called Mouse Guard. I'm not completely... Mm, one of the things that I really like about it is conflict mechanics. There was a raven. And in Mouse Guard, because we are playing mice, a raven is a big, huge deal. I mean, you are mice. You literally are mice. You don't have any superpowers, nothing. So anything around you, the weather, for example, it has disastrous effects about everything that is happening. And you need to pay a huge price in order to succeed in anything, which is interesting and which is why of the, one of the core mechanics in Mouse Guard is conflict, where each side choose three cards and reveal them out of four possible actions and each pair of actions have its own sort of role that will lead to something happening and eventually you will win or lose or maybe get some compensation from the conflict it's interesting it's one of the most interesting things about the system and uh, Uri you might want to take a look at it it's, it has some remnant it reminds me of fate and the way that conflicts work in fate as well I have actually read the Mouse Guard guidebook, um, mainly because when Aviv left Israel, she forgot it here. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with forgot. Sure, she forgot sure. it. For some reason, it's in my <laughs> book, uh, on my bookshelf. And so I've read it, and it seems like a really fun game. It's very complicated. I think it's overly complicated and very bitsy, a lot of bits to move around. But the person that ran it was Jess, Jessica, that you might remember listeners from a few episodes ago. She gave us an email and we used it and it was awesome. And it was her first time running Mouse Guard and one of her first ever times she ever ran anything at all. She's a person that just started role playing half a year ago. Uh, but she's fearless. She, I mean, GMs, new GMs, I wish I could show you how she ran a game because she was completely, I don't want to say in charge, but she didn't flatter. She ran the game. She wasn't afraid that she's doing something wrong. She wasn't, you know, too cautious or maybe I'm nothing. She just sat down and ran it like a game, like a GM. And that's probably the only skill a GM really needs. Get the willingness to sit and run the game without double checking yourself and being doubtful about every action, etc., etc. The hardest thing about anything is just doing it. Exactly. That's it, guys. If you want to listen to us more, then do check dwarfcast.net because every Monday, except on Mondays when it doesn't happen, but it didn't happen yet. <laughs> But it might someday. You can listen to us because that's that's what that's how it goes. That's I mean, what we do. Yes, that's what we do. We, we record a podcast and, and then we publish upload it every month. Yeah, there's an episode, everything, yeah. And that's it. Thank you, Uri, very much for this episode. Thank you, Aran, very much for this episode. And thank you, listeners, for being here with us. Yes. We like you guys. We do. Later. On the Shoulder of Dwarves is shared under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Form. The intro and outro are taken from Silly Fun by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution Free. Find us at dwarfcast.net and follow us on Twitter or Facebook.